0: You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 14th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today.
1: I want to tell you something I wouldn't have dared to say a few months ago if I could be fired for being too frank. And today it is simply too late to impeach Donald, at least the European one.
0: Donald Tusk, outgoing President of the European Council, says that post-Brexit the UK will be an outsider, a second-rate player. My guests Joy Ladico and John Everard will discuss that and the day's other news, including Saudi Arabia and feminism, uneasy bedfellows to say the least, and how Berlin wants to fix its most famous former border crossing. Plus, our own Chiara Ramella reflects on Venice's rising floods.
1: In 2014, Italian art historian Salvatore Settis published a book, Book called *Se Venezia Muore*, or If Venice Dies. It's an eye-opening read about cities and the causes of their demise over the course of history. I'm
0: Andrew Muller. Monocle's house view starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by John Everard, former UK ambassador to North Korea, among other postings, and Joy Ladico, the journalist and broadcaster. We will start with an illustration of the rarely fallible rule that politicians are at their most interesting, certainly their most honest, when they've left office or are preparing to do so. Donald Tusk, the outgoing president of the European Council, has made some bracing remarks pertaining to the United Kingdom's election and whether or not Brexit can, will or should ever happen. Tusk said that after Brexit, the UK would be an outsider, a second-rate player. Joy, this is kind of a statement of the obvious, isn't it?
2: It is. It's also a statement of the obvious that Donald Tusk did not want Brexit to happen. Um, And he is also... He has been building up a whole set of kind of quotes over the last two or three years about Brexit that get released on... um, twitter and occasionally in speeches um, there was one particularly memorable one if a deal is impossible and no one wants to do no one wants to do a deal then who will finally have the courage to say what the only positive solution is it's just like a priest <laughs> okay. and another wonderful one was um, we're prepared for the worst but hope for the best and as you know hope dies last now hope is the thing that he's been it's, it's amazing nobody's using that as a slogan in this campaign hope dies last <laughs> <laughs> and, um, not probably in a ditch as well okay. um but you know tusk is a kind of great optimist about um uh, british relations with the eu and has always been a great friend of uh, the uk and so i think he would like us to stay on grounds of honesty um well, you know, honesty has been a rare thing in this particular uh, um, Brexit uh, breakdown because I think we can all see what a disaster it's going to be, but nobody who's pushing Brexit will say so. Um,
0: John, on, on that subject of honesty and the, uh, I guess, increasing ease with it once a person has left the position of responsibility, Donald Tusk did say that he wouldn't have said any of this a few months ago as he would have been, as he put it, fired for being too frank. Um You, of course, have been an ambassador where where discretion is at a premium, but it's a possibly naive question. But why is it at a premium? What would have been wrong with Donald Tusk as actual European Council president, say, a couple of years ago, just saying to Britain, you know, this is mental. You've completely lost your mind. What are you doing? Are you insane?
3: He came pretty close he to saying just that. Now that <laughs> I've said all that
0: out loud, yeah, there was a fairly unmistakable subtext to a lot of his pronouncements. But
3: yes. what would have been wrong with just saying that? i, I I don't know about that specific example but in general discretion that the point about discretion is that you don't want to smash relationships of course you've got to say certain things and you often have to say them fairly frankly but you've got to live with your audience afterwards and you need them <laughs> to keep talking to you uh, so there are things that you can say just as you leave the stage or even off stage once you've gone that you hesitate to say once while you're still in the job
0: it, it, it's a bit like you, you're probably more inclined to tell somebody what you always thought of them after the divorce rather than during the counselling beforehand.
3: That's quite a good parallel, yes. <laughs> <audience. laughs>
0: um, Joy, the thing is, though, is there actually any chance of any Brexit voter uh, absorbing these pronouncements from Donald Tusk of all people and thinking, I think he might have a point, I'm changing my mind?
2: Well, considering some of the uh, drive to Brexit was a hostility to um, all the polls who'd come to the UK, oh, indeed. So, um, I don't necessarily think they've understood that Donald Tusk is, <clears throat> is not that swathe of polls who, so in fact, did a fantastic job in this country, and it's a shame many of them left. Um, so, no, but I don't think that's going to sway um, anything at all. But it does continually set this tone that, should something interesting happen in this uh, UK election, There has been and there probably will be a willingness to continue to do business with the UK, perhaps uh, even open that door to the revocation letter if that's what comes.
0: On the subject of this election, John, and you are, of course, no longer employed by HM government and therefore are able to speak freely. How how are you enjoying it so far as a kind of advertisement for, for British
3: democracy? I, you know, I think I'm a minority of one. But I'm actually finding some of the campaigning quite interesting and I'm quite enjoying it. it it's also complete... Joy's given me one of those looks. Uh, the, it's, it's also completely zany. Uh, I, I mean, half of the Conservative Party, uh, I think, have sort of realised that you know the, the great dream Brexit isn't quite all it's cracked up to be, but can't quite bring themselves to step back off their the plate. Uh, the Labour Party can't that, that
0: is up. a fair point. I, I cannot recall the last time I saw anybody attempting to say, this is a brilliant idea, we should totally do this, it's going to be great.
3: Absolutely. That has just dropped out of the uh, of the speaking notes. Uh, the Labour Party tying itself with knots over all kinds of issues, not least Brexit. Uh, and the opinion polls all over the place. Generally, it is very, very difficult to know what is going to happen on December the 12th. So it gets quite interesting.
0: Uh, Joy, a recurring motif uh, that we have witnessed so far has been interactions between the party leaders and the general public, mm. which have mostly served to illustrate why party leaders are less and less keen to interact with the general public. Uh, I'm I'm just wondering, has something shifted there? Does the fact or the possibility of virality on social media mean now that when people do actually meet a party leader, they kind of feel obliged to have a crack at them? Because they know it's all going to be filmed. It's all going to go viral. And obviously, if you just have a sensible, civilised conversation, nobody cares. But if you actually walk up to the Prime Minister or leader of the opposition
2: and have a pop you will become instantly quite famous. Um, well, that's the kind of reality of if you want to run social media campaigns in order to get your um, party agenda out and to get a huge number of followers, you then have to um, take the other side of that wall, which is the fact people themselves can use it to great effect. And there have been a number of notable ones recently, um, particularly in Yorkshire. Now, Yorkshire has strangely <laughs> become the kind of heartbed of this particular election. Boris Johnson went up to try and woo uh, the, the good people of Yorkshire um Early on in his, uh, it was a couple of months ago, and uh, he got harangued in the street a number of times, almost sort of as an act of hubris. He's trying to win fair seats in Yorkshire, they're kind of key marginals. Almost as an act of hubris, I think it was, because the floods then came and now he's got to go back to Yorkshire to be berated yet again by, you know, women in community centres, men <laughs> complaining that everybody's living on the streets. And it's just humiliating to watch. Theresa May was criticised for having these kind of lock-ins, you know, you know, uh, meetings in factories with, you know, 10 hand-selected people for the crowd. Boris Johnson is beginning to have to do exactly what Theresa May had to do in order to do any uh, messaging.
0: Joy Lodico and John Everard, thank you. We'll be back with more. More from you both in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Marcos Hippie with some of the other stories we're following today.
4: The United Nations has confirmed that a ceasefire has come into effect following days of bitter fighting between Israel and militants in Gaza. Violence erupted after an Israeli airstrike killed an Islamist commander. Gaza's health ministry says that dozens of Palestinians have been killed in the attacks. Italy is declaring a state of emergency in Venice. It follows widespread flooding that has damaged some of the city's historic landmarks and cut power to many homes and businesses. Italy's Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte has described the flooding as a blow to the heart of our country. The Monocle Minute reports that Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has cancelled a cherry blossom viewing party for the country's rich and famous. Abe's critics say he uses the event, which takes place in spring, to entertain supporters at the taxpayers' expense. For more, head to monocle.com forward slash minute. And finally, China has successfully completed a lander test in northern Hebei province ahead of an unmanned exploration mission to Mars next year. It is thought that the planned journey through space will take about seven months, while landing itself will take just a few minutes. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Marcus. You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Still with me are Joy Ladiko and John Everard. Let's look now at Saudi Arabia and the reforms it is attempting to present to the world in between ordering hit squads to murder journalists in the premises of its foreign missions. Saudi Arabia's state security organisation has apologised, not for the whole murdering journalists thing but for a social media post describing feminism as extremism feminism is of course an extremely relative concept where saudi arabia is concerned the same post also referred to homosexuality and atheism as dangerous though the saudi apology does not address this allegation
3: uh, john how reassured are we uh, by this climb down I think the most reassuring part of the apology is that it suggests strongly that within the uh, the, the Saudi security apparatus uh, there are the institution isn't quite as far out there as some of the extremist extremists, that somebody put that post out <laughs> and is now being reined in. They did, so so did, the,
0: you think the moderate extremists
3: have got hold of the extremist extremists? Pretty much, yes. There, there are There is actually a, a a range of extremists in there, uh, and not all of them are quite as, as bad as the people who put this post up. But I think that's about the extent of the comfort I can draw from the apology. Uh, as an apology, it... it doesn't go far enough. Uh, it says, yes, we, of course, feminism isn't actually extremist. It doesn't withdraw anything over homosexuality or atheism. Uh, and it doesn't say anything about how future posts might be better moderated. So not a lot of it for the future there.
0: Uh, Joy, this is part of an ongoing campaign uh, which is widely presumed to be at the behest of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to try and present a more moderate and more modern and more open Saudi Arabia to the world. Again, these things are very much relative concepts. Uh, how do you think it's going?
2: Um well, you see, I, if I'd make one brief, brief point on feminism and extremism, I think some of them, feminists would love to be seen as extremists. It would be a badge of honour. How dare this um, epithet be taken away from them? Um, a fair point. Uh, how is it going? Um, well, I think that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi last year probably uh, put a little bit of a dent in the international reputation. From a UK perspective, you'll see the Saudis buying up various states and things here in order to gain influence. Um, there have been these kind of grand world tours do we um do we regard saudi as a kind of modern a modernizing nation i think still the answer is no but the the fact is that we still have to do business with them so when Last year after Khashoggi, everybody cancelled their attendance at Davos in the desert. Happened again this year. Everybody just quietly signed up. And we have, you know, had sixty years of Saudi... I'm just trying to remember when the Saudi state was founded. 60, 70 years of of us doing business with a country that has such vast oil reserves that we can't afford to make moral judgments on them.
0: Uh, I will come back to that point shortly. John, I did want to draw upon your experience of, of having lived for a period in probably the only Country on earth which has been anything like as closed as Saudi Arabia, i.e. North Korea, where you were the UK's ambassador. How nervous or how cautious were North Korean officials in your experience at any prospect of opening the country up? Because the thing is, with a country like that, which is very walled off and very insular and indeed actually outright paranoid, once you let even the smallest amount of outside influence in. You could be causing trouble for yourself, couldn't you?
3: Yes, you could. Uh, How did North Korean officials think about this? It varied immensely. There were some who were quite clearly up for it, uh, who were hoping that their country would open up, and others, should we call them the extremist extremists? Please. Uh, Okay, Uh, who were were, were not prepared to countenance an iota of change. Remember that not only is North Korea paranoid. Just
0: to to pull that up, were there not even though even in North Korea, any what we might think of as extreme extremist extremists who thought North Korea should be opened up a bit so the sort of the decadent Westerners could come in and see how bloody marvellous everything in the Democratic People's Republic was and think, we want this at home. They're not that stupid. <laughs> they,
3: they did do some special tours, though, didn't they? They, they do do it? special <laughs> tours. That's right. The so tours no. are actually... I mean, they're, they're, they're very carefully managed, of course, and uh, you don't get to see everything. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. But they, they, are, they are actually quite, quite fun. And people come back to them having had a, a, as good a time as one can reasonably expect to have in, in North Korea. Uh, <laughs> but but coming back, uh, I, I mean, the, the the problem is not just that North Korea is paranoid, but remember that when reform started in China, North Korea went... Front pages everywhere saying this is stupid, Chinese. Don't do this. This is a horrible mistake. You will turn yourselves into a capitalist country. Were they wrong? Well, not 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 entirely. They were right about the
0: capitalist country, but I don't think many Chinese would regard it as an unmitigated disaster. In fact, I don't think you'd find many Chinese well, it it, it to the best of my knowledge, the, the The sort of the the refugee asylum seeker traffic between the North Korean Chinese borders is very
3: much in in one direction. It is now. It used to go the other way. Yes, of course, you're quite right. I mean, I think the Chinese, the average Chinese now is is immeasurably better off than they they were before reform and opening kicked off. If, however, your starting point is the revolutionary purity of your regime and the the ideological uh, coherence of what you're trying to achieve, then China, through that prism is a complete disaster, and the North Koreans continue to say so.
0: Uh, Joy, I want to come back to that thing about the necessity of doing business with Saudi Arabia. And yes, I understand how the world works and that you need oil to make things go and so forth. But would things change dramatically in Saudi Arabia... If it reached a point at which the world, and the world would have its reasons, decided to regard Saudi Arabia now much as it regarded South Africa in in the 1980s and basically just said, until or unless you people get with the programme, we're done with you.
2: Well, that's a very interesting theoretical question, actually. (laughs) And... There, because of the sort of various, I mean, it's the Saudis playing off with uh, off against the Qataris at the moment, we do in fact have options as to what we do with Saudi Arabia. Um, one of the reasons the UK has got such a deep relationship with Saudi Arabia is because the Queen uh, loves their horses and sh- they love hers. And so there is this historic kind of relationship at the top that cannot be broken. Um, the other relationship obviously is with the US and Saudi Arabia because the first person to basically buy up the oil reserves and so- sell the rights to them to the US was Um, Kim Philby's father Jack Philby I think his name was so they've got again this deep historic connection to this country and so these kind of friendships have been built up over a very long time and how do you upset them and they also have the military firepower in that particular region if we ostracised them um Well, you know, I think the oil price might just ostracise them. The coming of um, electricity as the alternative to oil might ostracise them. It may just happen through economic terms if we don't do it politically.
0: I just have the ideas. It's up to other people to make them work. Uh, Finally, on today's news panel to Berlin, where the current 30th anniversary observances of the breaching of the wall are prompting an amount of beard scratching about the preservation of the wall's most famous former crossing. Checkpoint Charlie on Friedrichstrasse was once the tensest front line of the Cold War. The site is now... Now a gaudy swamp of souvenir shops and fast food establishments. There is a redevelopment plan in play, but as is the way of such things, everyone seems to hate it. Um, John, is there an argument that there's something actually kind of poetic about Checkpoint Charlie finding itself surrounded by all these avatars of? red-in-tooth-and-claw capitalism.
3: Yes, on both the East and the (laughs) West side. Yes, there is a kind of poetic justice, isn't there? Um, At the same time, uh, it is pretty tawdry. Uh, I I mean, it's not the the Western freedoms and the free availability of consumer goods at their glorious best. It's cheap tat everywhere. And you can quite see why people feel that Checkpoint Charlie, of all places in Berlin, deserves a bit more respect and a a bit more commemoration of, of, of what was there before than it's now getting did you ever have cause, john to cross it when it was still a checkpoint oh frequently uh, I, when i lived in berlin i used to go through checkpoint charlie to buy potatoes cheap in east berlin and and, <laughs> and bring them back for my supper and the guards there got to know me reasonably well and you know we've had interesting conversations about the relative price of potatoes in east and west germany such were the, the, doors the, of my <laughs> life. the long word.
0: winter evenings must have flown by yes that's um, right Joy, what I mean, what the thing is about Checkpoint Charlie, and it's a it's a weird thing I think about how we memorialise communism generally. That it has taken on this weird kitschy, cheery aspect. You can go to Checkpoint Charlie and you can buy sort of bogus fur hats with with you know faux hammer and sickle badges, and it. Kind of seems like a weird way to recall a absolutely monstrous regime which murdered people by the million and kept half of Europe prison for half a century.
2: Well, I mean, I think the, it, I mean, I, as you say, I think it's some sort of punishment in its own kind of bizarre <laughs> way for this is the kickback you get against it. I'm afraid I'm the post-cheap uh, potato um, Berlin uh, regime. I I only get there in the '90s when I'm a student and. Um, Already it had become, at that point in time, a a great focus for the tourists. Um, If you look at it in, in context of larger Berlin urban design... And planning, I rather think that one area of it should be handed over to the, the burger joints, the chip joints souvenir places because so much energy is put into this idea of how to re- dis- rebuild this city or which areas to industrial areas to, to let become hipstrophised that in fact it would be quite good for just a bit of naked capitalism to take place and you can see what it would be like. So I would be sorry in a sense to see yet another perfect urban design programme. However, the the, the, the there, there is one of the kind of contrary ideas to uh, the the uh, the. Preparation has been planned which is Tim Renner a former music producer who wants to bring two tanks into the area now again I would think and it is absolutely shocking Well, actually I think it would be fantastic to see a couple of tanks with kind of children crawling all over them and teenagers um, smoking fags and playing guitars on them because it would it would turn the idea of a kind of tank into something that was a plaything rather than a, a great threat that it used to be John, does does Berlin
0: deserve a special dispensation for for not memorialising absolutely everything dreadful that has happened in or to Berlin? Because geographically, it's not a big city. An awful lot of things have happened to it, especially in the last hundred years. If they were going to memorialise absolutely everything, there would be nothing in the city but
3: sombre, miserable memorials. Yes. Uh, I mean, some miserable memorials also. I mean, Berlin was around long before the Cold War was invented. True. Uh, You know, memorials of of where writers, artists used to live, You know the famous coffee houses where famous works of German literature were were, were engendered, and so on and so forth. Yes, you could bring the entire city to a halt, just drown (laughs) it in its history. You have to strike a balance somewhere. But given that, I still think that Checkpoint Charlie is a very special place and deserves special treatment.
0: John Everard and Joy Ladico, thank you both. In a moment, Monocle's Chiara Ramella on what we need to learn from Venice's floods. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned.
5: Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? for any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's the Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, a Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore.
0: This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Romella, examines Venice's struggle against rising waters.
1: In 2014, Italian art historian Salvatore Settis published a book called Se Venezia Muore," or If Venice Dies. It's an eye-opening read about cities and the causes of their demise over the course of history. Cities writes Cetis, can die for three reasons – destroyed by enemies, forcefully occupied and demoted by an invading power, or forgetting their past. Venice's evolution in the last few years – floundering in hordes of tourists, rocked by the passage of huge cruise ships, drowning in increasingly frequent floods – appears to be placing it in the last category. This week's floods, the worst since 1966, have killed two. They have damaged shops, homes and churches. There are many reasons behind the rising occurrence of Aqua Alta, the Venetian's term for tidal floods. Climate change, as the city's mayor rightly decried, is certainly one of them. The exploitation of poor areas and the damage to the canal's seabed is another. But Venice's inability to protect itself against the oncoming water is also a clear sign of a city with a short memory. A conversation about building a tidal barrier to protect the city began decades ago. That project, called MOSE, is still far from completion, marred by overspending and corruption scandals. Setis believes Venice is the most blatant example of the way many of our cities are falling foul to greed fueled false progress. If Venice dies, he says, it won't be just Venice dying, the very idea of a city will die. That's why not only Venice, but all cities need to learn the lagoon's lesson. Only preserving its history and respecting its heritage will rescue it now.
0: That was Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Ramella, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Marco Sippi and researched by Jolin Goffan and Giacomo Harper. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Louis Allen. Coming up at twenty hundred London time, a brand-new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller.
3: Thanks for listening.